Friday night, I did attend the Nashville Symphony at the Skirmerhorn, and much to my delight, especially after last week's message, the percussion section did include a gong. (laughs) And they did whack that thing a couple of times, and it gonged out, and I said, there, that's what I'm talking about. That sound right there. It just brought me joy. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That is where we are picking up this morning. At this point in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he addresses yet another topic that seems to be a question that was asked concerning the resurrection. Apparently, there were some folks who were having a hard time with the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. And there are still people to this very day who have a hard time with the concept that Jesus rose from the dead. For me, in my history, even though I was raised in the church, even though I went my own way for a few years, it was a lesson on the proof of the resurrection that made me begin to rethink the Christianity that I had been raised with. And it was the proof of the resurrection that convinced me that the whole rest of the Bible had to be true because that person who rose from the dead gave credence and credibility to the whole rest of the Bible. I don't care if you don't comprehend Noah in an ark with two and seven animals, if that's tough for you to grasp, Jesus says it's true. The one who raised from the dead gives credibility to that story. So your lack of belief doesn't matter. The one who raised from the dead believed it. I don't care if you don't believe in Adam and Eve. I don't care if you have a struggle with the idea that God created the first man and the first woman because Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, said that God created them male and female and he gave credibility to the Adam and Eve story. I don't care if you struggle with the virgin birth. That's not where Christianity begins. That's not the heart and soul of Christianity. The heart and soul of Christianity is Jesus rose from the dead. If you take away that single element, if you take away the resurrection, the rest of Christianity falls apart. And Paul's about to argue that. If God still exists and God's still a judge and Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then you, he's going to argue, are still in your sins. And you have no redeemer, you have no savior, and you have Nothing to look forward to but being judged. Therefore, enjoy all the life you can because when it's over, it's really over. Because you got nobody to stand in the gap between you and an eternally righteous, holy God. So the resurrection is fundamental to Christianity. So Paul is going to address that question, and he's going to talk through all of chapter 15 about the resurrection, and then conclude on the very high point of, and since there is a resurrection, we have hope of a resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, but that means that there are going to be more to follow. If he's first, there has to be somebody that's second and third and fourth. There has to be a whole harvest after the first fruits. That's what the feast of first fruits was all about. And then on top of that, he says, and now I'll show you a mystery. We're not all going to die. Some people are going to be instantaneously changed. So chapter 15 ends on a very, very high note. And I want to be among those people that are instantaneously changed. I like that idea. Kellen is nodding at me and being much younger than myself he has a greater possibility that he's going to do that. Because get this right, death is an enemy. I just mentioned that I've spent this week with my mother down in Tuscaloosa, and I am watching her slowly die. Some people die fairly quickly. 
They just go from life into death. I know the story of a fellow who used to work with my dad, young man in his middle 30s who sat up in the middle of the night, said to his wife, I don't feel right, and fell over dead. And for me, I'm thinking, that's the way to do it. My grandfather, my mom's dad, said goodbye to his wife. This is my brown suit. This is my blue suit, he said, pointing to his closet. And he said, I know you bought me the brown suit. I prefer the blue suit. Bury me in the blue suit. And she said, oh, Lert, stop talking that way. He said, Maggie, you're not listening. Bury me in my blue suit. And he lay down in bed and he died. And I think that's the way to do it. My mom had her first stroke two years ago. She had the massive stroke that left her permanently paralyzed a year ago. Well, a year ago, Halloween. And then a couple of weeks ago, she had two more strokes. She can barely speak. She's on a feeding tube. And there she lays in her hospital bed. Of course, it's very difficult for me. It's, it's very emotional for me. I went from everything from sad and grieving to anger. I, I was surprised by the amount of anger I had driving home. I'm angry that my mother is going through this. But her death is taking a long time. My point is, make no mistake, death is an enemy. Now, to the Christian, death is an interruption between life and life. But in all instances, until the Prince of Peace comes, until the resurrection happens, until the change of this state, our mortal, sinful, fleshly, dying state, until that is changed to an ever-living state, until we are like him and our bodies are like his bodies, until that time, we will continue to struggle with the reality of death. And so Paul's going to address that. There's nothing more reassuring once you know that death is, is universal, everybody dies. Once you know that, that death is an enemy, once you understand the interruption of death and the hardship of death and the pain of death, once you know all of that, there's nothing better that I can tell you than that you're going to live again. You're going to rise from your grave. There's going to be a resurrection. And the proof that there is going to be a resurrection is Jesus got up from the grave. And if he did it, if God raised him from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection, that is the sure and certain promise that we who belong to him, who are the body of Christ, as he's been talking about in the last three chapters, we who belong to Christ will raise again in like manner as he raised again. And that's wonderful, wonderful news when you're sitting next to the bed I sat next to this week. It's good to know that at the end of all this, it's not just darkness. You know? I see atheists online all the time. All the time. All the time. No matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, I see atheists online. Stop it! No. I see atheists online arguing that this life is all there is. They argue for Darwinism, and they, they argue that everything that happens in this world is the result of random chance, or perhaps if there's some order to it, you know, survival of the fit is the, the pecking order of this life or something, but then they all agree that when it's over, it's just over. You just go to the darkness, and it's over. And so really there's only one of two ways that this life can end. Either you're going to die and it's over. You go into the darkness. You know nothing. You don't get a chance to even realize that, oh, I was wrong or, oh, I spent time on something that didn't pan out. Nobody's going to get to say, ha-ha, told you so. There's, there's just nothing. It's just over. Or... When you die, you move from this life into the next life and you are either redeemed and saved and glorified or you are judged. That's the second version of what might happen when we die. Now, if the first version is true, 
If when you die, you go to the darkness and there's just nothing, then you really have nothing to worry about. In fact, I don't even know why anybody is moral. I don't know why anybody does anything if it's just when you die, it's over. When you die, take everybody out with you. Who cares? What does it matter? There is no judgment. There is no morality. There is no ethic. There is no reason for doing anything. There is no great eternal mind behind all things in life. So, so when you die, you die. Do it today. What difference does it make? Why would you struggle? Why would you live longer? Why would you carry on? Just go ahead and be done with it. Because when it's over, it's over. So I don't get that view. But when it's over and it's dark, you've got nothing to worry about. You're just dead and you're gone and you're not conscious and you're gone. But if, when you die, God does exist and there is a judgment, then the risk of what you have to lose is enormous. Because then you run the risk of living forever in outer darkness under the condemnation of a righteous and a holy God. The way I view it, having devoted this part of my adult life, half of my living years, having devoted myself to the cause of Christianity seems like a good investment given the options. Because if I'm wrong and there's nothing, I lose nothing. Nothing happens to me. Okay, I devoted myself to Christianity, but I had a good life. Everything went okay, and then I died and I went to the nothing. But if I die and God exists and he's a judge, I want to be on the side that is in Christ, that is accepted in Christ, that is drawn toward God to live in everlasting joy and glory. And so the risk factor is so huge that I just can't imagine casting yourself off into eternity, shaking your fist at God and convincing yourself that there must be nothing. That's just too big a risk as far as I'm concerned. Now, in my own life, I've had enough evidences that there is something more to this life than flesh and blood. That alone gives me reason to go examine what happens next because you're going to live a whole lot longer out there in eternity than you've lived here on this planet. For me personally, my personal view is that there is something out there and I want to know who's in charge out there and I want to be on his side. I'd rather have him fighting for me than against me. But... The people who say there's nothing and everything is just happening according to random chance. And when you die, there's nothing. If there's nothing, they win. Fine. You got it. But, of course, you never get to gloat. And you never get to go, hey, I told you so. That None of that ever happens. You just die and go to the nothing. But the evidence is that there's someone out there and he's a judge and he's all knowledgeable and he's a creator and you don't want to be on the adversarial side of him. You understand that? Yes. Am I in any way convoluted in my thinking? There's either nothing or there's something. And if you think there's nothing and it turns out there's something, you're in big trouble. There, that was easy. I could have said that and saved you all that time. So Paul is going to argue to the Corinthians here that the resurrection from the dead is the very heart and soul of what Christianity is. Because if you die and God exists and Christ exists, then there is the promise that not only are you saved, not only are you redeemed, but that you will be joined again with some version of your body. He's going to argue that it's a different body than the one that you planted. But you're going to have a physicality to you very much like Christ had, who was as comfortable in the throne room of God 
bringing the sacrifice of himself on behalf of all his people into the throne room of God, he was as comfortable in that very, very spiritual environment as he was sitting next to the Sea of Galilee frying up fish. He's the one who could say to Thomas, touch me. Because you'll see that a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. I do. Look at the holes in my hand. Look at the hole in my side. That's very physical. That's very tangible. And yet he was able to go through a locked door. Yet he was able to go through a rock. I don't think that the rock on the tomb of Jesus was moved so that he could get out. I think the rock was moved so that we could get in. So that we can see that the tomb is empty. But I think he went through the rock, he went through a locked door, and he pierced the heavens and went all the way to the right hand of God. And that's the kind of body you're promised. That you will be as comfortable in the new Jerusalem as you will be in the throne room of God. And your bodily form, your visage, your your complete physicality and spirituality will be so wrapped up in that new version of you that has been accomplished in Christ that you will be universally comfortable wherever you are because you're both physical and spiritual and made exactly like Paul says in Romans 8 that you are made, predestined to be made. You are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, conformed to the image of his son. That is your ultimate goal, to be just like him. Got it? Got it, Because I don't have any better news for you than that. You got it? Okay. So let's read Paul's argument. Now he's going to start right off by saying, I'm telling you the gospel. What is the gospel? The euangelion. I've told you a couple times, the euangelistas is the person who preaches the euangelion. So that's the evangelist. He preaches the gospel. And then within the church, as we've been seeing for the last several weeks, within the church there are certain gifts that certain people are given for the good of the whole body, and among those gifts are teachers. Now, I am convinced that the teachers exist for the purpose of teaching the church, having been converted by the gospel, they teach the church the sound doctrine. But as far as the essence of the gospel, Paul narrows it down to Jesus died for your sin and he raised again. That's the essence of the gospel. I believe in the election of the saints, but I don't start with the election of the saints. I believe in Christ's limited atonement, but there's no point in teaching somebody limited atonement until they understand that there was an atonement, that he did die for your sins and he did raise again. Okay, now we can talk about what the limitations are. But when it came right down to the gospel, Paul doesn't start talking about irresistible grace. Perseverance is kind of hinted at in this, but he doesn't lay out those wonderful doctrines that he lays out in other places when his purpose is to teach sound doctrine and to tell those who are with him, teach this, the sound doctrine. But that's the teaching that is within the church, the euangelion, the gospel that is preached by the evangelist is for the purpose of telling people who don't know anything about Christ, who have never heard about Christ before, to tell them the good news, the good spiel. And he's going to narrow the good spiel down to Jesus died for your sin and he raised again. And that's the essence of the gospel. The rest of it, wholeheartedly agree, believe it, teach it, promote it, argue about it, I'm, I'm right there, I'll debate in favor of it. But as far as telling people the gospel, when I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is, who has never heard about Jesus, who doesn't know the Christian doctrine, I do not start with eschatology. I start with who is Jesus and what did he do? And the essence of what he did was he died for your sin and he raised again. That's the gospel. Get it? Got it. Do you get the difference between the evangelist who preaches the euangelion and the teacher who teaches the church? They each have their place. 
within the church, and they each have their function. And the function of the gospel is to tell people who Jesus is and what he did. So let's start at verse 1, chapter 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the euangelion, which I preach to you. In other words, he's saying, when I was there, when I was in Corinth, when I was with you, I told you this. I preached this to you. This is the essential understanding of what Christianity is. I preached this to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved. Okay, now we're not going to have time to get into a big, long debate about this. But Paul is very clear that without the gospel, without the preaching of the gospel, without the knowledge of the death of Christ and his resurrection again, that people cannot be saved. It is through the understanding, through the preaching, through the announcement of who Christ is and what he did, that is the mode of salvation for people. Yes, yes, I agree that God can, the same way he can make people speak in tongues, He can also knock people down and instantaneously save and change them. But the common method that God uses in the salvation process is the preaching of the gospel. And so, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If, here's that perseverance part, if you hold fast, the word which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. So Paul is saying, I've preached to you, I was there, I told you about Christ. You didn't know anything about him. You're in Corinth, you're Gentiles. You don't know anything about the Old Testament. You don't understand the predictions, the prophecies of a Messiah to come. As far as you knew, that was some Jewish religion over there that had nothing to do with you. But I'm here to proclaim to you that Christ Death and resurrection is sufficient not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. It's sufficient for everybody who truly, genuinely cast themselves upon him, believe in him, trust him for all of their eternity. That, he says, I came and preached to you and you believed it and you stood on it. And yet, he says, you've got to stand on it and hold fast to it. You've got to cling to it. You've got to hold on to it every day with everything you've got. And that's as true today as it's ever been. Anywhere you look in the world, there's somebody telling you this is not true. There's somebody denying the gospel, denying the lordship of Christ, denying the sovereignty of God, denying that the Bible could possibly be true denying that the Bible is saying what it means to say, oh, it's been through so many hands and been interpreted by so many different people who interjected their own opinions and ideas in it that you can't possibly believe it. There are people all day, every day telling you you can't believe Christianity. Smart people don't. Educated people don't. You want to be smart and get along with your friends, don't you? You want to be looked on as an intellectual person? Well, then you can't possibly believe something as crazy as this guy in the Middle East 2,000 years ago died and resurrected again, and that somehow your sin debt is paid by that. That's, That's silly, they think. And so Paul says, not only did you hear it, not only did you receive it, not only do you stand on it, But you also have to hold fast to it. You hold fast to the word which Paul preached. And if you don't, then you have believed in vain. You thought you believed. You liked the idea that the church was a a good social group to be a part of. But as far as that Christian thing, that resurrection thing, that death for sin thing, you let go of that, you went back to the world, you did exactly what Peter said you would do, pigs return to their mire and dogs return to their vomit, and that's because they're not sheep. They might be pretending to be sheep, they might be pigs and dogs walking around talking about bah, like they're sheep, 
But the reason that they went back to their vomit and back to their mire is because they're not sheep. Sheep, when was the last time anybody saw sheep in a mire with pigs? Rooting around for a while. That's not what sheep do. But that is what pigs do. Mia, who brought a pig today, didn't know that I was going to use this as an example. (laughs) We've nicknamed him Porkchop. And we've all agreed as a group that we're not going to explain bacon to her. Um, But the reason that the pigs and dogs go back to acting like pigs and dogs is because they're pigs and dogs. They're just not sheep. Sheep don't act like that. And so Paul admits that there are going to be those people who are going to look like they've accepted Christ who are standing in that because it seems like a movement they want to be part of, but they don't persevere in it. They don't hold on to it. They don't cling to it. And so ultimately, they are not staying with the sheep. They're going back with the pigs and dogs. John talks about it. They went out from us because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they would have stayed with us. But they went out from us to make manifest that they were never of us. So it's true, it was true then, it's true now, that there are always going to be people who will glom on to Christianity because it looks attractive at the moment. Maybe the church is putting on rock concerts or maybe the, the group is doing something you see is socially beneficial and so you join in. But there is a small number according to Jesus. Narrow is the way, straight is the gate that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. And that few, those sheep, those people will not only stand in it and believe it, but they will persevere in it. And you got to persevere in it because it's hard. It's hard in this world. It's hard in this God-hating world, in this Christ-hating world. It's hard to stand up and say, I'm Christian. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult. But Paul says that you stand in it, you're saved by it, you hold fast to it. Unless you have believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you. As of first importance. That's primary importance. I delivered to you. That that I received. What I also received. He didn't know this. He was one of the. Pharisees among the Pharisees. He's one of the leaders in Israel. He's studying at the feet of Gamaliel. And. Before the law, he says he was blameless. He didn't know anything about this Christian stuff. He didn't know anything about the resurrection or the death of Christ paying for sin. He didn't know any of that. How did he know it? He received it because I keep saying over and over and over again, and I'm going to say it again now. Get ready. Here I go. I'm going to say it again. Tattoo this to your memory. Christianity is a revealed religion. It's not something you can figure out through your own intellectual processes and ability. You cannot figure out genuine Christianity unless God himself enlightens you to the reality of what he did through his son. And that's why people don't get it. He didn't enlighten everybody. As I just said, Jesus said that it was a small group that ever reached that enlightenment. And so it's no surprise that the majority of the world is not going to get it, is going to resist it, is going to hate it. But Christianity has to be revealed. You would think that somebody rising from the dead would be a universally acclaimed thing. Everybody would notice it. It would be on the cover of People magazine. That's the Jerusalem edition of People magazine. That everybody would just be so excited about Jesus rose from the dead. This is cataclysmic. In the course of world history, a man rose from the dead. And even then, nobody knew it. It had to be revealed to people. It had to be shown to people. Isn't that remarkable? There were still people arguing about it after it happened. There were still people denying it. The Romans, the Jews, the soldiers. People still arguing that it couldn't have happened. A man rose from the dead and still that had to be revealed. But that's perfectly in keeping with Jesus' example of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man saying, send somebody back from the dead to go tell my brothers so they don't come to this torment. 
And Jesus' application of that story is Abraham saying to him, they're not going to believe even if somebody rises from the dead. He knew he was going to rise from the dead and he knew people would still not believe. But the ones who do believe are the ones who have it revealed to them. So Paul says, I delivered to you as of first, as of primary importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Not according to as in if you read the scripture, you would know that. What he's saying is this is what the scripture does spell out. This is what the scripture is all pointing to. This is what the scripture all foreshadows. And him rising from the dead is not an aberration. It's perfectly in accord with everything the scripture says. The scripture has been saying for more than 1400 years. It's been teaching these feasts and teaching these sacrifices and Isaiah's teaching, Isaiah 53, that there was going to be somebody who was going to come and bear our sins before God. And yet God was going to prolong his days. All of the scripture, the Old Testament, all points to the culmination of Jesus living and dying and rising again, which is why Jesus could say to his apostles when he was walking with them, That's why he could show them all the places in the scripture, the Old Testament, that applied to him. That he could show that the beatings, that the death, that even the resurrection were all part of God's eternal plan spelled out in the scripture. So I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, here's the next thing that Paul does, and I think this is brilliant. Because I don't ask anybody to take my word on faith. Just because I stand up here with a Bible and say, Jesus lived, died, resurrected. I don't expect anybody to believe it just because Jim said so. And Paul seems to take that same approach. What he does is he states facts. They would know. They could check with other people. Did Jesus live? Was he alive? Was he alive in Jerusalem? Okay, well, everybody would say yes. It was well known that Jesus was living and was crucified in Jerusalem. That was a well-known event. But then he says that fact, he lived And he died, but here's another fact, he was buried. And they could all check. They could say, was he actually buried? Everybody knew where the tomb was. Known accessible tomb right there by Jerusalem. The tomb is right by the place, the place of the skull where he was crucified. It's the the tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, who's still alive. You can see the tomb that belongs to Joseph, and you can hear him say, yes, we actually put the body in here, and the body's gone. So these are facts. He was buried, and then he was raised on the third day. Now he's going to state that like a fact. Notice that Paul is not saying, you need on faith to believe these things. Paul is saying, these are realities. This happened It's going to be revealed to you, but these are facts. That he lived, that he died, that he buried, and then that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he lists more facts, people you can check with, eyewitnesses, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have died, but some have fallen asleep. Why does Paul list people that way? Because he's saying to anyone who wants to inquire, go check. Go check with them. I'm not making stuff up here. There are witnesses to this. What I'm stating are facts. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus buried. Next fact, Jesus resurrected. As real as the fact that he lived, as real as the fact that he died, as real as the fact that he was buried, 
is the fact he was resurrected. And then I've got a whole list of witnesses. Go check with them. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, born out of due time. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And yet Christ revealed himself to me. So put together Paul's earlier statement of saying, I'm telling you what was told to me, what was revealed to me. And his statement here where he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle. This is somebody who is actively persecuting the church. Not in any way, by any means, Christian. And yet Christ saved him, converted him, taught him, and then sent him out to tell other people the truth of the gospel. And the essence of the gospel is he lived, he died, he resurrected. Have I lost anybody yet? Trying to be as clear and didactic as I can be here. I'm trying to let Paul make his argument because it's a brilliant, brilliant argument. Because as I said, we may not get to it this morning, but it's going to culminate in, and you're going to have a glorious body. And so all of this buildup is convincing you of the reality of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, and that because that's all true and it's all factual and it's all provable and it's all historic, because you can prove all that, then the end result also has to be true, which is, you're going to rise again too. You're going to have a glorious body too. And for those of us with aches and pains and sadness and sorrows in this life, we we look forward to that whole glorious body thing. So he appeared to all these people. Paul is laying out his facts. Now he's going to talk about his apostleship. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whenever I read statements like that, I have to kind of marvel at them because I'm aware especially through the book of Acts and the different things that Paul writes, I'm aware that ever since Christ intersected his life, everything in his life went bad, went hard, went difficult. Five times he took the lash. Stone left for dead outside of Lystra, day and a night in the deep. He apparently had eyesight problems. He may have been battling malaria. He just... Everywhere, constantly, he's in trouble. And he's about to say that. That I constantly live at risk. People hate me constantly. And yet he's saying to people, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, wait a minute. Before, you were a rich and powerful Jewish leader in the synagogue. That seems like the preferable earthly stance. And then Jesus came into his life. And then everything got really difficult, got really hard, got really problematic for him. And yet, because of the surpassing glory of this promise of the resurrection and this promise of heavenly estate and joy and everything else, despite the fact that he was taking the beatings and the stonings and the hatred of other men, he could still say to other people, come join me. You have to think that people were going, no, that doesn't look fun. It's certainly different than Christianity is marketed today. Christianity today is marketed as come to Jesus and everything will get good. Bigger car, bigger house. People will like you. You're more fun at parties. Run faster, jump higher. Just just come to Jesus. Everything gets better. You get healed every time. You won't have any sickness, never have any pain. Come to Jesus. But that's not the Pauline experience. That's not the New Testament experience. That's not the apostolic experience. Jesus came to them and then their lives became tremendously difficult. 
So that ought to reassure those of us who have come to Jesus. And then our lives got more difficult because that's the way that Christianity has always been. But that's on purpose. That's by design. God knows that now that we are brought to Christ, that our faith has to be built up and that our confidence in him has to increase and our confidence in ourselves has to decrease. Isn't that what John said? He must increase, I must decrease. And the best way to accomplish that with human beings is not by giving them chocolate. It's not by giving them feather beds and happy days. By making sure they always have plenty. That's when human beings become self-sufficient. But cause people some pain. Cause people some trouble. And their faith is built up and they cry out to God and they persevere in the faith. God knows that. That's part of the design. So Paul has said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. And yet, it wasn't me. It's not I. It's the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or whether it was they, the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. The word so there means do this just so. Not like so much. God so loved the world. It is, it's just so. Do these things just so. You've been preached this way. We have told you the gospel. We have told you about Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And whether it was me or whether it was the other apostles, we have all preached the same unified message. And because you heard that message, you believed that message. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You can't say I'm Christian and I don't believe in resurrection in the same breath. Those are counterintuitive. Those contradict each other. Those are contradictory statements. I'm going to get this sentence right yet. You can't possibly say, I believe in Christ and everything he did and what he accomplished, but oh yeah, I don't believe that resurrection thing. Now among the Jews, that was the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That the Pharisees believed in angels and resurrection and the Sadducees didn't. And so this is a long-standing debate, not only among the Gentiles, but among the Jews. And it is still a long-standing debate to this very moment. People arguing about when you die, what happens next? And Paul says, why are there some among you who say there's no resurrection if Christ is preached that he raised from the dead? So if he raised from the dead, there must actually be resurrection laying at the very heart and soul of Christianity but if verse 13 but if there is no resurrection from the dead which is what they were claiming well then not even Christ has been raised you get the logic if Christ is resurrected then you have to admit that resurrection exists if you say resurrection doesn't exist then Christ can't be raised So now he's going to talk about the implications of Christ not being raised. You who say you're a Christian, you who believe in God and then say there is no resurrection, do you understand the implications of what you're arguing? This is what Paul is getting at. If there is no resurrection, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is vain. That's number one. The word vain means empty, means pointless. Our preaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is vain. It's empty. It's useless. 
because we've been walking around saying Christ raised. But if he didn't raise, if there's no resurrection and Christ didn't raise, then the fact that we're out here preaching Christ is raised is pointless because there is no resurrection. But even worse, our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. Your trust in Christ, your belief in Christ, that he's going to make it okay between you and God, that you're not going to be judged because of Christ, forget all that. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, then there's no proof that God accepted his sacrifice. It is the resurrection that is the sure and certain proof that God was pleased with what Christ did. But if Christ is still laying in the grave, if you can roll away the stone and there's still a body in there. You know, there is a theology professor at Vanderbilt right here in Nashville who has been teaching for years and years at the School of Divinity, who believes and who has widely published his belief that when Christ died, he stayed dead, and the reason they didn't find his body was because it was eaten by dogs. That's his theory. And he's teaching at the School of Divinity in Vanderbilt, which is why so many people refer to seminary as cemetery. So, sorry. There are still people today, is my point, who are saying there's no resurrection. Okay, I'm going to date myself here. Not, I'm going to go out on a date with myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you how old I really am. How many people in this room remember the album Jesus Christ Superstar? Tim Rice, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Remember that? Do you remember how it ended? It's, it's two albums worth of music. Do you remember how it ended? It ended with, and he was in the grave. The end. No resurrection. There's no talk of a resurrection, no preaching of a resurrection. Now that came out when I was in college. See, there's the dating myself part. And oh, my friends were so excited about it because it was the lead singer from Deep Purple who sang the part of Jesus. Who could have imagined that Jesus had a high falsetto scream. Who knew? Oh, it was so rock and roll and so exciting. And my friends got so excited about it. So I bought the album. I think I still have it at home. And I uh, listened to it. And I got to the end of it and I went, that's not right. It was nice music. It was okay lyrics. But it's not the right story. Because that story that they told about the life and death of Jesus isn't the whole story. The whole story includes Jesus resurrecting again. But that idea of resurrection is being suppressed universally in the professing church world and certainly in the God-hating world. But if there is no resurrection, then you have nobody standing between you and the judgment of God. And you're going to stand there with all your faults and all your warts, with everything you've ever said or done or didn't do that you should have done, and the law is going to judge you according to that righteous standard. And you don't live up. Forget the rules or the ordinances of the law. Let's just narrow it down to the the ten. You didn't do it. Or let's just take the standard that Jesus took when he said that all the law and the prophets were wrapped up in you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody here want to say they've done that? No. We've all failed to live according to the righteous standard. And you've got nobody standing between you and the judgment of God if Christ isn't raised. That's how important the resurrection is. That's how fundamental the resurrection is. And that's why it is so systematically attacked generation after generation after generation. Whether in pop culture, whether in supposedly biblical theology, or whether in the way that people live in the denial of the resurrection. When was the last time you heard a really good resurrection message from Joel Osteen? 
I mean, never. And yet, Paul says it's of first importance. It's right there at the very center of Christianity. You can't have Christianity without this. Despite all the churches that pretend to be Christian churches and ignore this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. So now Paul's saying not only is our preaching vain, but the God who exists, who is a judge, we're in opposition to him. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, then God didn't raise Christ from the dead, and we're out here saying he did. So the whole thou shalt not lie thing, we're guilty right away. The false witness thing, Guilty, guilty, guilty. We're out here saying this is what God did. He raised his son from the dead, but he didn't. So we're lying against God. We're false professors of God. We're testifying to a thing that didn't actually happen, and we're lying against the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of God. How can we not be judged? Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God Because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Get that? Because The resurrection, as I keep saying, is the evidence, the proof positive that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ. But if God did not accept the sacrifice of Christ, well, then God still exists. Notice that Paul's a priori position is God exists. He never questions that. God exists and God is a judge. The creator of everything exists and you, bad news, are leaving this world fully impacted by the fullness of your sin. And you're going to stand in front of the one who is holy, holy, holy. What are you going to do? You're going to plead your case? What are you going to do? You got nothing. You've got nothing you can possibly say to make it okay between you and God, and you have nobody to stand in that gap between you and him. So that's Paul's point. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have already died, your loved ones, those that have fallen asleep in Christ, who died believing in Christ, believing he was their redeemer, he was their hope, he was the one that gave them the confidence to go out into glory. He's no help to them. They've died in their sin and they're going to be judged. You want that for your mama? Your daddy? Your loved ones? Lost a child? It's very, very hard. It's very, very difficult for us to imagine that our loved ones have died and are going to be judged. But if the resurrection didn't happen, that's a certainty. That's absolute. That's definitely happening. Because there's nobody to redeem them. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this, I'm going to add the word mortal, in this earthly life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. The King James says we are of all men most miserable. If there's no resurrection, if Christ did not get up from the grave, then the only hope you've got is in this life. And that's why I began this morning by saying, if you die and there's nothing, okay, you win. But if you die and there's something and he's a judge, then you're in really, really bad shape, really desperate condition. Paul assumes that it's not nothing. It's God. God exists 
And because God exists and because God's a judge, then you better live it up right here, right now, because this is all you get. And if you got a lousy life, poor you. This is all you get. If you had a good life, live it up, enjoy it, eat, drink, be merry, because when it's over, it's over, and judgment awaits if there's no resurrection. Are you getting a feel for how important the resurrection is? I mean, it's the very essence, the very core of what Christianity is. And you can't possibly preach Christianity aright and not place plenty of emphasis on the resurrection. The resurrection is why we are certain that Christ's finished work satisfied God and that we are redeemed in Christ and that we will be able to stand before God not judged because he already judged Christ. And Christ took our sin debt, and he paid the sin debt fully. And because we are in Christ and he is in us, we have no fear of death. But I'm telling you, if there's no resurrection, you better be mighty afraid. Because death is out to get you. Verse 20. But now, there, I couldn't leave you at verse 19. I couldn't leave you on all that bad news. You'd walk out of here going, man, church was a bummer this morning. I am so sad I went to church. I mean, I like the people, okay. I could put up with Micah, but, you know, I just, but man, it's such a downer. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's back to making his statements of fact. He lived. That's a fact. He died. That's a fact. He was buried. Known, provable fact. He resurrected again. Fact. Notice that Paul didn't get to the resurrection and say, now I hope you can believe this part. I hope you have faith in this part too. No, he's stating facts of history. And those facts are the very facts that I laid out. If you're curious, if you're interested, back when we were doing the systematic theology a couple of years ago, we videoed it. It's on YouTube. We spent a couple Sundays just talking about the proof of the resurrection. My daughter sat up here in a chair, in fact, and wrote things on the board behind me so that we could go through the provable, logical facts of history that prove the resurrection. So Paul could say, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep. Let me say this real quick and I'm going to let you go. Okay, so for 1,400 years the Jews have been keeping feasts. God has assigned them the feasts. Particular times in every year, bunched up groups of feasts, so that three times a year, every Jew that could travel had to go to Jerusalem and keep the feast, observe the feast. And the first group of feasts was Passover. Passover was always on the 14th of Nisan. The next day was the beginning of Unleavened Bread, the 15th of Nisan. That was a week-long feast that started with a high day at the beginning and the end. And the first day of the week, during that seven days... During that seven days of unleavened bread, the first day of the week was the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days later was the Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost. So the Jewish leaders were determined that of all the things that they might do, they were determined that they were going to kill Jesus, but the one day they were not going to kill him was Passover because that would make him a martyr. And then the end was going to be worse than the beginning of this whole thing, so we're not going to kill him on the Passover. So what day did he die? Passover. The one day they were determined not to kill him is the day that he died. Just as first fruits is beginning, which is a high day, which is why John mentions that it's a high day, just as the unleavened bread is beginning, Christ is put into, the bread of God is put into the grave at the beginning of the unleavened bread feast. And then in that week, Following, there is a first day of the week, a Sunday. And the one thing that all the gospel writers emphasize to us that we know for a fact, we don't know what day he died. There's speculation, Wednesday, Friday. I'm leaning toward the Wednesday thing, but there are people who believe the tradition of Friday. But what we know for certain is what day he got up. 
we know he got up on Sunday. We know that the women came to the tomb on the first day of the week before sunup and the tomb was empty. And so why? Why was it so important to all the gospel writers to make sure that they told us that he raised on Sunday? Because that was the feast of first fruits. So when Paul says he's the first fruit of the resurrection, he's not just using snazzy language. He's not just using a a clever little Hebraism that will make his Hebrew writers go, oh, Paul's still being Jewish. No, Paul is saying that for 1,400 years, the Jews had to keep these feasts that prefigured the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And they did it for all those hundreds of years, centuries and centuries, never knowing why, never understanding what it was about, thinking that these were just harvest feasts. But they did it. Kill the Passover lamb. Keep the unleavened bread. Have a feast on the first day of the week. Fifty days later, Pentecost, have another feast. But they never understood that God was teaching, 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 telling the same story over and over again, prefiguring, foreshadowing the fact that he was going to send his son to the world and that his son was going to be the Passover lamb, which is why John would say, behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world identifying him as the Passover lamb. Jesus walked around saying, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the bread of life. He was the unleavened, sinless bread. He died at the beginning of unleavened bread. He was put into his tomb. And then on the day of first fruits, he raised from the dead because he is the first fruit of the resurrection. What you need to know about the feast of first fruits is that as long as you brought the first fruits to God, then there was the anticipation, the looking forward to the hope of a bountiful harvest, which is why Jesus walked around talking about the harvest to come. And because he was the first fruit of the resurrection, there's going to be a bountiful harvest of resurrection. The same way, Paul's going to say it, we'll look at it next week, the same way that Paul said with a seed. You put a seed in the ground and it dies, and then it becomes a plant. The same thing with people, that they die, and you bury them in the ground, and then they come up a new person. They come up a resurrected being. And it is that resurrection hope that is the very essence of not only Christianity, but 1,400 years of of Jewish foreshadowing. That's how important it was to God to say, this is all about my son and what he accomplished, and I'm going to foreshadow it for centuries so that when it comes true on the face of human history, I can point at it and say, there it is, right on time, on schedule, in the year, in the month, and the day that I said. I'm that sovereign. I'm in that kind of charge of human history. And even though every human being on the planet didn't want it to happen that day, that time, that way, it happened that way anyway, because that's what sovereign God was teaching and predicting and prophesying and saying about his son. That's the centrality of the resurrection. If you don't got that, you got nothing. And it was so important to God that he taught it and taught it and taught it and taught it. And then it happened in real time. And we know we're getting up someday. We know we're going to resurrect someday because we know the first fruit of the resurrection. Look, there can't be a first without a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth. I'm perfectly happy to be in the thousands as long as I'm in. As long as I'm part of that harvest, as long as I get to partake in what Paul said. Paul said that he endured the things he did, that he worked as hard as he did, and he endured the beatings, and he went, all, and he went through all of that, not protecting, not longing for his own life because he was trying to achieve the better resurrection. That's where he put all his hope. You get it? Yes. Do you get the centrality of the resurrection? You understand how important it is to Christianity and how important it is to your hope. April's all young and vivacious. April's all, hey, I feel good. You look at April, she's like the picture of health. You look at me, you go, that's sad. That's, I feel bad about him. Someday, even if you've had a good and a healthy and a, and a fortunate and a blessed life so far, someday the resurrection is going to get really, really important to you 
because your body is going to start to fail you. And your body is going to go the way of all flesh, and your body is going to hurt and ache and get sick and die. But the promise of the resurrection is why we Christians have hope. Got it? Got it. All right, good. Any questions? I was that clear? Well, Paul was that clear. I was just letting Paul make his argument. And I think it's a great argument. All right, next week we'll look at the second half of chapter 15. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.